0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Independent Life. I have just come out of an interview with Mary Mayhew. Uh, She directs the Florida Hospital Association and has a storied career in public service where she worked for Health and Human Services for the state of Maine, for the state of Florida. She's ran for governor of Maine just has a tremendous amount of experience in public service. And in this episode, we talk about uh, systems that largely serve people with disabilities, whether it's uh, Medicaid, whether it's child protective services, housing, transportation, like all these big, big systems that she's had the responsibility of overseeing that serve hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and billion dollars worth of budgets and just thousands of staff that she's had to supervise and figuring out how to how to make these systems better because the why of these systems and and their nature of existing is to to help the most vulnerable among us and many of of these systems are those that, you know, people that we serve, people with disability are accessing and utilizing. And so it was just a thrill to have a conversation with somebody who's in these positions of leadership and has these kind of responsibilities. And so, yeah, we talk about, you know, how do we make these systems better? We know kind of what's wrong with them and get into that. But I gotta say the real inspiration that I received from this conversation was her talking about some of the importance of having a why, having a north star, being confident and having self-worth but also having a degree of humility how to approach difficulties in her life to overcome. She shares a personal experience uh, that she had and when she was running for governor and you know didn't get the governorship and how she oriented and equilibrated herself and where it led to her coming here to Florida and taking over uh, the Agency for Healthcare Administration during the time when the pandemic was hitting. And she made some really important decisions that helped to save the lives of many people we get into a lot of the what it means to be a leader and to be a better person, the importance of what I'll call, I guess, you know, self-care, connecting with a good social support system to take the time to get into nature, to go on walks, to be of service, and why all that matters, how in this day and age of divisiveness, how we can have more unity. You know, I just am very grateful for Mary Mayhew coming to to take the time to talk to the Independent Life Nation and to be able to have this conversation that I now bring to you. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting episode of the Independent Life Podcast. I am here with Mary Mayhew. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So excited about this
1: conversation.
0: Me too. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm a little intimidated.
1: Oh, stop. Stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We I'm, I'm really
0: intimidated. Your resume speaks volumes, and if you don't mind, maybe just do a high-level summary of uh, your professional life, what you've been doing.
1: Well, I'll start with what I often share and and certainly have shared uh, and discussed with my sons. And it starts with, you never know. You never know what path you're going to take, right? We all set out with goals uh, in our lives. I could never, first of all, have predicted that I would be here in Tallahassee, Florida, having had the experience that I've had over the last several years. And I'll, I'll get back to that. You know, I was a Um, a political science major. And I, you know, I'd always remember I was going to do the foreign service, Tony, I was going to do international uh, relations, and I never, ever got even close uh, to that. Uh, I started doing um, uh, I worked on the Hill in Washington, DC for a member of Congress, uh, focused on domestic policy, I did Government relations work for a corporation doing state government relations for the Equifax Corporation in Atlanta, Georgia. uh, You know, they're they're, their credit reporting bureau. And then I decided I needed to experience a political campaign. Uh, So I ran a congressional campaign back in my home state of Maine and then that set me off on a path of getting more uh into at ad- well the i lost we lost uh so it came close but you know, <laughs> close in a political campaign doesn't count uh and so then i i was able to get involved in um uh advocacy uh, working for a uh law firm not uh, i'm not a lawyer uh, but they asked me to set up um uh, a lobbying firm got exposed to a variety of issues and topics and then ultimately decided I wanted to really get uh, more immersed in healthcare, actually went to work for the Maine Hospital Association uh, doing government affairs and did that for 11 years. And then I wanted to better understand government programs. And I probably did the reverse of what a lot of individuals did. I, I left the private sector and went to work for a newly elected governor in Maine. And then uh, within a, a couple of weeks, I was I was hired as his health policy aide. And then in a couple of weeks, he said, literally said, I can't find anybody who wants to run the Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs> I would like you to do it, and I'm gonna give you 24 hours to decide. Wow, pressure's I wrong. gotta tell you this, I'm glad he only gave me 24 hours. Right. Had I thought about it any longer, <laughs> because this was one of those agencies that had absolutely everything under one umbrella. So I had Medicaid and child welfare and the state psychiatric hospitals and all of the aging programs, all of the welfare programs. I had public health, But in but you know, at the time I can remember after I had said yes. The fear started to seep in. Right. The the putting my feet on the ground in the morning was the hardest thing to do to start my day, knowing what I was up against. This was an agency that had been hemorrhaging red ink for years. I was there for six and a half years. The best experiences of my professional career. Wow. Because of the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives, right? When you when you've got that vision, when you've got that that purpose, and 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 I had a governor who was interested in making a difference. The governor that I worked for in Maine um, was the oldest of seventeen kids, was homeless oh, man. at age wow. eleven, and he believed in pathways out of poverty and wanted to create accountability for those programs and helping people fulfill their potential. And I took very seriously the work that that he wanted to accomplish there. All of that, Tony, to say, and then ultimately the privilege and honor of arriving here in Florida after I ran for governor, was crushed, as my boys like to remind me, in Maine, and then ultimately was recruited here to Florida, worked for Governor DeSantis, running the Agency for Healthcare administration and then now arriving here at the Florida Hospital Association. Wow.
0: I would imagine your your work, of course, Centers for Independent Living, your work you've done with our dear friend Jane Johnson, you know, we serve people with disabilities and uh, health and human services, obviously, a uh, large population of people With various types of disabilities within it i'm super excited to talk to you because i feel like we're kind of kindred spirits in the sense of trying to figure out the most effective ways to to serve people and to meet their needs and to also you know have that accountability that we're uh pulling ourselves up from our from our bootstraps as well but um before we dive into all that though i, I do ask most of our guests like and, and feel free to you know pass on this one but do you do you have any personal professional like experiences uh related specifically with uh, disabilities
1: well certainly um my professional time I, you know i because of the role that i played in maine and because of the role that i've played over the medicaid Program So um, as Medicaid was part of the um, state agency in Maine that I oversaw and then Medicaid part of ACA here, I- I've had over eight years overseeing Medicaid programs in terms of what they incentivize and don't incentivize as it relates to supporting individuals uh, with disabilities. And then, of course, the agency in Maine had a lot of programming, much of it, of course, driven by the federal government. Uh, around um the resources to support individuals with disabilities. And then, you know, I've I've made it a point in any of the roles that I've played, but certainly my time in government, I've always said, I don't, no one makes good decisions behind a desk in the state capitol. Right? You've got to get out, you've got to be on the road, you've got to interact with the individuals who are. Um, In need of support uh, from these programs dependent on these programs to really understand so still very much um, part of my professional but it has given me a much deeper understanding uh, of what's working and unfortunately Tony I have to say more about what's not working uh, in so many of these programs
0: when you talk about, you know, health and human services and, you know, all the different like programs that are under it, like you listed a few there, like between Medicaid and uh, say SNAP could be under there, uh, substance use, mental health, transportation, housing. I mean, like there's so many different like systems that are within all of this. How do we get those systems to integrate, coordinate and work effectively? It seems like they're their own systems, but also there's overlap, but I'm not sure how well, you know, they really integrate with one another uh, when it becomes to practice. Wow.
1: You're really going to yeah. ask me that, yeah. are How you? How do we do it? That is like the $3 trillion <laughs> yeah. question that every everyone around the country, uh, and certainly those that interact with state agencies that oversee those programs, that's that's the, the age-old question. And it's fascinating, really. You know, I I always start with, and again, I learned this perspective overseeing that agency. And really, I I will also say as a leader, as someone who has managed these, these organizations, I learned very quickly, you've got to be in the room. I needed to be in the room uh, with, you know, a lot of my managers and and, and staff to hear, to understand, to ask questions. I'd always be the one, look, I'm going to ask the stupid question, um, because I need to understand what our intent is, what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know the 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 challenge of of when you take a step back because there's a lot of autopilot uh, oversight of these programs but if you start with just common sense that individuals and families don't fit neatly into one program area they often have a variety of needs you just outlined several There may be transportation, there may be housing, it may be food insecurity, there may be mental health or substance use disorder treatment. And these programs, for the most part, are completely siloed. We don't have, uh, and when we talk about children, I I think it is even more um, challenging uh, as to how we effectively, support individuals that that do need that more comprehensive integrated approach so a lot of it goes back to how they're structured at the federal government always i was always amazed you know there are a number of programs under the united states department of health and human services where you would think and hope uh, that there was coordination but they're in just as structured silos and so then when the money flows to the state agencies and to the programings, to the programming, and and certainly as part of how that money flows, there's great oversight by the federal government. There are audits that are conducted by the federal government that really reinforce the silo. Uh, you know, one of the first massive audits <laughs> that I had to deal with overseeing a Medicaid program was criticism by the United States uh, Department of Health and Human Services from a Medicaid perspective that Medicaid was paying for non-medical transportation. And I'm not talking about non-emergency medical transportation. I'm saying there was a fear that funds were being braided between the Department of Transportation grants to states and Medicaid, and that Medicaid was paying for trips to the grocery store. Now, some of us could take a step back and say, okay, we understand that, however, how do we effectively use these programs to support the needs of the individual and uh without healthy food i could say your health is going to suffer right i mean i can i can connect dots on on a lot of these but i i'll end i'll i'll pause with this and say one of the areas that it is hard to believe in the year 2023 is that we don't have data systems that are Um, I'll use the word client, client centric. So I could look up Mary Mayhew um, at at a state level and see, well, Mary is receiving this benefit from uh, the Department of Children and Families, this benefit from the Agency for Healthcare Administration, um, and this benefit from the Agency for Persons with Disabilities. That doesn't exist. It doesn't exist here. And it really doesn't exist in other states.
0: So you can't like be able to coordinate uh, if someone's accessing a program in one area and another area. They're not; those systems aren't talking to each other.
1: They're they're not, but it's not insurmountable. Um, you know, when when I oversaw both child welfare and Medicaid as a practical example, if I was trying to reunify parents with their children one thing that would be helpful to know and understand what are some of the medical challenges that that family, those parents may be facing? And so we looked at the acuity of their healthcare through their medical utilization with Medicaid to better understand what are the resources that need to be deployed that helps for a successful reunification. So, but that was a manual process but a recognition of of the value today again, it's you know you gotta you gotta differentiate between the private sector and the resources that they have to do system integrators. but that that technology exists. So you're not building some new system. you are layering on top of multiple uh, databases this system integrator that allows you to pull and just run a query on Mary Mayhew right? Then comes it comes back. But then, by the way, it isn't just getting the data and the information, then it is the coordination. So for children, if you think about, you know, a child uh, in school that may have um, um, disabilities, mental health needs, could be some interaction with child welfare, you could have a minimum in Florida of four different state ag- agencies interacting with that same child, the Department of Children and Families, the agency for Healthcare Administration, the agency for person with disabilities and the Department of Education. And while there's value in all of that support and service, if it's not coordinated, if each other if each agency doesn't understand how they're supporting Sally, it's, it, it it may be um either needs are going unmet, or there's right. duplication.
0: And would you say like, so part and parcel, could be the, the, the tracking and communication between these systems. Um, but what else do you see as being like some of the issues with the coordination? I, I'm, I'm thinking of a comment. I wanna say Jay might've attributed it to you. If not, I'll, I, will, I will retract. <laughs> but, it, um, but the system itself has been designed based on reactionary processes that have been in, put in place due to litigations. So, so, like, we got a system that's built on lawsuits, which, you know, is kind of like very reactionary and probably not the most efficient system to have in place in the first place. So, I'm seeing like data tracking, communication, but also, like the house it's built on or the rooms that we have within the house are also like constructed in a way that's like very uh, litigious in nature from its you know founding
1: it's very it's true. and it and it it would be interesting as you evaluate some of the different programs and how they've evolved, uh, I certainly believe that as it pertains to um, disabilities and mental health, in particular, related to lawsuits. Now, let me just say this, though. Um, There's value in shining a spotlight on deficiencies in a system. And if that spotlight had to be brought to the equation through a lawsuit then so be it right so recognizing that institutions were no place for individuals to be cared for right this country went through massive rightfully so deinstitutionalization.
0: institutionalization that centers for independent living yep that's how we came into existence yeah.
1: but you can't leave those and you know, and I oversaw the system both uh in in maine for for individuals um with with mental illness, but also for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And what I saw in both systems is, um and there were numerous um uh, class action lawsuits that continued uh, to try to drive the system. but but the challenge still is it was still somewhat rooted in the immediate fallout post-deinstitutionalization, right? We're gonna go out and we're gonna buy capacity. We're gonna try to buy residential community capacity. And I respect and value what that was trying to support. But but you have to make sure, and this is the challenge, by the way, with, with government. First of all, you wanna make sure that government is not trying to be all things to all people. And and that government is is really accountable to the individual and understands uh, some of our most vulnerable uh, individuals and, and what they need. It, it is often a sort of a, a one size fits all, but it's also the moment a law and a regulation are set up or a payment system is set up through a governmental agency, it becomes locked in a time warp as the world changes and so you know coming back to how do you really ensure accountability and in this instance talking about how do we support and ensure that people are having their needs met in a way that allows them to fulfill their potential and and that to me if you use as the barometer right that's what we would want to be evaluating the vast majority of these programs but to your question it was a crisis oriented response. And it was, and I don't want to say checking a box, because that 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 devalues a lot of great work, but almost a moment in time. So how do we keep pushing appropriately, and get away from anything that feels like, you know, I always said, Tony, I would have had a lot fewer Bad headlines in Maine. I've been caricatured uh, in so many different ways. Marie Antoinette when I did food stamp reform. I could have saved myself and my children, uh, a lot of headlines had I managed to the status quo. but I wouldn't have been fulfilling, you know my responsibilities, my obligations to go into every room and say but why? good question. Why are we doing it this way, and how I would lead off in my meetings and say, "Who are we serving?" and how are we serving them? Are we making a difference in the lives of those that depend on these programs?
0: Those are great questions. the the how the 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 who and the the where are we being efficient with these programs. We, we we talk about like I want to back up just a little bit so I think you're hitting on something really good when you talk about government its role the underserved and everything else like that and for for me not having nearly the the amount of public service or uh, certainly not the uh, academic and live experiences that you that you have with what a democracy is and everything on a very oversimplified level look at uh, our country as like very much about um, individual rugged, you know, pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and the common good and, and, and you know, that, that kind of thing. So so how would you explain then, like, what is the role of uh, government then in meeting the needs of the – and I guess it would be then going right to, like, who, who is it that, you know, government should be, you know, set up to help and how should they be helping them and where has it been efficient?
1: Yeah, it's it's really important, and it, and I think that the challenge that we face is sometimes the path the path of least resistance is not the necessarily the best path um, for 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 the role of government or the individuals that they're trying to support. I think government has to truly be careful about trying to be all things to all people, um, which means leaders that are often in politically appointed positions, right? I was in a politically appointed position, the governor elected, right? The challenge you face is those individuals generally want to be liked. Making tough decisions doesn't always make you popular. (laughs) And dependency on programs can become, um, you know, over time, it's hard to disrupt the models that exist, or the dependency that has been created. And then what happens, we end up with these really polarizing political debates. I I share what you expressed as a philosophy, that at the end of the day, you want to be evaluating government based on whether or not it is supporting that rugged individualism and helping people fulfill their true potential and what I saw and I think it happens whether it's in government it can also happen in service organizations you have to be so careful that you don't become jaded and conclude that but for the governmental program, but for the service organization, that individuals are incapable of changing their circumstances or that, or worse, conclude that individuals are incapable of changing their circumstances. I I know you've seen it. I have seen it time and time again. When individuals are supported with their self-esteem, their self-worth, their self-confidence, they can truly change the course that they're on and, and, and fulfill their potential. But if we create programs that devalue their self-worth, their self-esteem, and we don't do it intentionally, obviously. Um, You know, great book that I read years ago, Toxic Charity um you know talked about um the father uh, who was sitting in his living room as christmas presents were being delivered to his home by a charity and he got up and left the room and and later you know the an individual part of the organization talked with him and he he talked about his pride was being undermined not that they didn't have the best of intentions but it's just it's something that we have to constantly reflect on. And, and I've I've just seen too often that given the right resources and support and belief in their potential, people right. can move mountains.
0: Yeah, you know, on a on a very um Kind of like individual level, and very, even oversimplify going to this toxic charity idea. So, um, centers for independent living, being independent, having agency in our lives, making decisions, etc. Oftentimes, we'll hear from people with disabilities who, you know, maybe have an, uh, a visible disability. They have a physical disability. They're they're unpacking their groceries from their car, and some, you know, bystander will come by and just grab their groceries and start helping them. You know, by doing that, and oftentimes they'll, they'll be taken back. They're like, look, I didn't ask for help. I'm doing this on my own. I'm being independent. And here it goes, somebody just jumping right in to help me and come save me, quote unquote, uh, and, and be able to do that kind of stuff. And maybe, like you said, it's good-natured, but this idea that we just always need to be, you know, bailing people out um, versus, like you said, can we instill them with knowledge, skills, and confidence to be able to get to a place where they can be pulling themselves up and having the agency in their lives to uh, do, to better themselves and uh, to to make a difference versus kind of getting into this. I, I almost think there's a momentum or um, some inertia with that dependency on externals to, to to be doing the work that we could very capably be doing. And we see this all the time with disability.
1: Tony, I, I have had... Um, consumers um, say to me, I tried to fire my uh, support coach or my support aide. I didn't need them anymore. Um, Again, I want to be really careful about how I say it, because it's not as though the, the agency that is providing the services and supports is doing it with ill intent. But when you create business models and revenue streams, that are dependent upon the service delivery and not the outcome it, it inevitably is going to encourage uh, more service delivery than necessarily that pathway to in, to independence um, i think there is an other challenge that you just described and unless you've been exposed to unless you have been around individuals um with with limitations um and see what 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 individuals are capable of. And I, you know, and I do often come back to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You know, I have I've just I've had the opportunity to see with the right resources, the types of employment um, that that individuals with profound intellectual and developmental disabilities can do and their pride in the paycheck. And and I think, um, you know, we all have those biases, you know, based upon what we've been exposed to, what we understand. And until there's greater understanding, greater education uh, of what, it's not this, you know, what I can do, what someone else can do. It's not one's right or one's true fulfillment. Everybody has their own unique potential. To fulfill, And that's what has to be understood. And the problem, again, when you've got uh, a government program, rarely are they uniquely tailored programs and services. So we have to be we have to be aware of that, mindful of that, because when those programs start to detract from the individual's ability or are counterproductive, to the individual's ability. That's where the guardrails have right. to be in place.
0: Yeah. You know, for me, I, I almost find the, the the challenge being, you know, how do we balance between meeting an individual's need and uh, meeting the needs of the many? You know, I have a, a background in education. You know, so you got a teacher in a classroom of 30 students who have all different types of learning styles. You know, they got to teach something that meets the The learning styles of all these, say, different people and different backgrounds and certain skill sets and comprehensions. Um, and so at an individual level, they got to be able to tailor this one message to meet all of them in, in a certain way. So like, how do we do that? How do we balance like really trying to empower individuals, but we're doing it at scale? You know, that's, that's gonna,
1: yeah. But it's, that's such a great comparison. And I I don't, I don't know that we've always achieved it in the educational um, setting in the classroom. I think there's a recognition of um, different types of programming that help to supplement uh, the, the approach to the individual needs, but driven by outcomes, though, right? Education has really been um, pushed uh, to define successful outcomes. I, you know, we think about children, uh, K through 12, are they kindergarten ready? Are they at reading level by grade three? What's the graduation rate? Um, what's the employment rate post graduation, et cetera? So, I, you know, there are outcomes that increasingly we're using. Those outcomes are not as present, in a lot of other um, government programs. Many of those programs are still measured by the volume of services delivered, and not necessarily to what end. Uh, so, I'm a I'm a huge either evidence based processes or outcomes based. But I but I do think it's you know when people talk about limited government you know like anything things can get misconstrued about what that actually is but government will never be a church government will never be a family government will never be a rotary club right there are things that we have are in our communities networks, you know, often referred to as social capital networks. Uh, you know, if I've got a problem, I want to talk to somebody, you know, who's a friend or a family member who can relate to the situation that I have. I think in government, we sometimes lose sight of that and think we've got to create it within government. Uh, there's another book that I, I I loved as well called the The Alternative. And it was uh, about an individual who um, uh, came from Mexico. His mother um, um, moved to the United States at a very young age, or he was at a very young age. She worked multiple jobs um, to help support him, get him through um, school, through college. And then he started working in a nonprofit, and he had this concern about exacerbating dependency. And so he started this whole initiative about trying to flip the model on its head. And the point of what he was focused on was how do you support individuals developing social capital? And and one of the best examples that I can recall from the book uh, is that an individual came to their nonprofit who needed a letter interpreted, and the employee at the nonprofit interpreted the letter. And that employee was later let go because it was completely counter to the philosophy of the nonprofit. The nonprofit was trying, in this instance, his his revised model was trying to say to that individual, who in your neighborhood could help you interpret that letter? Uh, How are you building those connections in your community that can you Know further sustain you, uh, and and help with your you know fulfillment of your potential as opposed to the one size fits all of a government or a, right. a non profit.
0: Right. I, I love what you're saying. Like, government will never be a church, a family that we want to turn to the people in our lives. For like, if we have, so I imagine some of your you know walks with Jane Johnson, you know, might be a lot better than turning to Uncle Sam or something, but um, and I like the idea of yeah, like building social capital and 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 having that you know, to, to, for other people. I, I do kind of think like that is where the common good is. And, and I would say that in some of the books I've read about like evolutionary psychology, um, that we evolved as, you know, uh, the way we did because we were able to work with each other, more like bees and ants versus then like these solitary individual, you know, people. We came together and, and formed community. And, and community not being necessarily government, but, but you know, being neighborly, uh, you know, starting with ourselves, building that out to our family, building it out to our neighborhoods, and uh, being strong that way was, was a way that we really showed strength in terms of uh, our evolution and uh, the way that we've uh, you know, grown as a society. But perhaps have lost sight of that. Um, you know, we, we don't know our neighbors as well necessarily nowadays, or, you know, we can, you know, I guess maybe commute out more and have our circles in different places. But, you know, I, I can see in some ways that we're we're, we're almost going the opposite direction in, in building social capital. And if we're doing it, it's more probably in digital worlds than it is in interpersonal, you know, kind of spaces.
1: You know, I'll try to not... Sound too pessimistic here, but I am concerned about that. I am uh, on multiple fronts. i'm I'm concerned about the the um isolation and the um self-absorbed um, end result of social media and uh the complicating challenges of declining resiliency and 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 all of that kind of leads us in the in the wrong direction in terms of that community engagement and the value of that. Uh, You know, it's why I always talk about Rotary Clubs and and Rotary Clubs are not the only um, example of this, but they've been around for a very, very long time. I worry a little bit about the aging um, of our Rotary Clubs, but I have such incredible respect um, for that philosophy and what it reflects around um civic and charitable engagement locally uh, and and certainly you know churches um certainly are part of that equation as well and and really when we take a step back and we try to measure our our success as a society are we promoting strong independent adults and we know what that pathway should look like from child, from infancy uh, through the educational system. Do we have thriving families, robust and engaged communities? That That's the measure of, those are the measures of our success, human flourishing, um, we've got a lot of indicators to suggest we've got we've got some challenges, and and some of those may be getting worse. Uh, you know, based upon the not that technology is bad, but those walks in the woods, <laughs> as we keep coming back to, um, may not have the same prioritization as it should.
0: And like the simplicity of interpersonal nature, so like and in, in you're in this world too where, like, of course, you know, politics, um, division, uh, you know, and then, then we got, you know, with the technologies and the social media, screen time, outrage culture that has this almost like hypnotic dopamine-esque, you know, kind of allure to it. Um, so you talk about resilience. Um, so how do you, Mary Mayhew, have resilience in doing the work that you're doing in areas that can be of this kind of social environment that 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 you're in. I, I know you got some, you know, really good, you know, kind of uh, probably philosophy that must ground you. Uh, but given that, you know, this is kind of the, uh, the days and times that we're in, how do you stay anchored?
1: Well, I, I would have to say so much of it still comes back to childhood and, and how I was raised and and the philosophy of my parents, my 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 mother and father worked really hard. My mother was a nurse's aide uh, in a hospital probably long before there was even certification of, of nurse's aides. And my father, uh, you know, worked in a factory. And um, they believed in, as you've said uh, frequently, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, um, and, you know, and I think sometimes that generation, um, for those of us, as my kids like to remind me, for those of us who are boomers, um, you know, my parents um, did deeply care about the well-being and the mental health of their children. It was a different time. There's no doubt about it. But but they instilled um, that, that sense of pride, that sense of self-worth, but they understood that you you get that by doing, by working by by doing for others. You know, that was really a part of of how I was raised. Um you now I will also say my parents, I was the youngest of four. My parents moved from Maine to Arkansas when I was 14, and I was the only one still left at home uh, that that had to move. Um, I won't dwell on um my experience, uh, the 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 very different um environment from Maine to Arkansas. <laughs> but i had to i had to toughen up yeah. tony uh, if i was going to survive and thrive um i i had to develop some thick skin i think um that experience served me very well i was also uh, again i'm sure you know from how i was raised i was very goal oriented and um that has served me well throughout my career but but let me i'll just say this when i went to work in government um, in Maine, running that large state agency. Um, I hadn't done anything like that ever in my career. You know, I had thirty six hundred employees. Three point five billion dollar budget hemorrhaging red ink. There was something going wrong in that agency every single day and had a history of it. And it was a tiny little state where the media. Wanted to pay very close attention to that agency every single day. And I had to really develop the stamina to withstand. And there's a difference here to withstand the criticism and still lead. All right. So there's a difference between withstand the stamina, the, withstand the barrage of criticism and shut down versus be able to cope. Um, with the incoming and still have principled leadership. And I had six and a half years under the microscope of that public scrutiny uh, that that really has served me very, very well. Um, I'm also, because of that experience, I'm really focused on being true to myself and, and authentic in how I communicate. Um, as the old adage it's it's much easier to tell the truth uh, than try to remember the the lies <laughs> you've been spinning, right? Um, sure. So um, just be true to yourself, be principled in your your um, your focus, and 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 it has served me well.
0: I'd imagine that's very helpful and not leading by reacting to the criticism or reacting to the i think you put it I, I think i read somewhere that you were saying you know by you know there's always like the fires of the day you know that can really take you off course you got to come back to the why the mission uh the goals the strategy and uh there's always going to be a fire that can take you off the the, the course
1: you know tony i, I the, the the example i often use and and it which is also by the way very humbling. Um, and it provides perspective. I did, I oversaw child welfare for six and a half years. And and that is a is an area where there are often um for for legitimate reasons, significant crises occurring. And you you have to, first of all, the humbling part is it it gives you perspective about what really matters. Uh, in this world, and and supporting vulnerable children and families, um, critically important. Um, so you know, something falling off your your grocery list really uh, not a big deal, right? I mean, this is puts things in perspective. But but it was also a great example of you have to you do need to respond to the crisis. But how do you get better at it? And and so in child welfare, as an example. Child welfare has a lot of data, a lot of data, but it is a very intense and emotional engagement. How do you both not lose emotion, because that matters, but how do you also leverage the data to effectively manage and respond? So the example I would give, um, research has has always shown that um, a a parent, a mom, uh, potentially Uh, with a substance use disorder that is living with someone who is not the parent uh, of the child and the child is under two years of age, unfortunately, a lot of data about the risk of that child uh, not surviving. And so for me, I would want to know then of all of our cases, how many of those cases fit that criteria And how are we aligning the dedication of resources to those higher risk cases? And for anyone in the state today who's involved in child welfare, they're probably saying, well, duh, of course. Um, And, and, you know, and hopefully that is largely the case. But that's what you want to make sure in in, in any programming that you are definitely responding to, to the concern the crisis, the fire of the day at the same time charging forward. With that proactive management and leadership,
0: not easy. Not easy to do that at all, right? Yeah no,
1: no. And I'm sure you have plenty of experiences with that. It, that's why I'm asking,
0: yeah, you know, because like, yeah, there there is always like the the issue of the day uh, that that'll come in. But like you said, I think I love how you have like a compass, you know, that will say like this, you know, will overall drive, you know, our decision making when we have these kind of characteristics or conditions that are happening, focusing, leveraging and doing those kind of things. And, and at the same time, you know, if we get an individual coming through our doors, that has been abused, abandoned, neglected, uh, for whatever reason, we got to tend to them as well. And to be able to, you know, do it, do that juggling.
1: Absolutely, and I and I think that the the issue often is the ability to probe. Um, Too often in government, there is a fear of a punitive response, whether that's a media negative headline um, or because you have um, appropriately so sunshine laws um, where um, email and other communications can be recovered and 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 brought out into the public. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes that can lead to paralysis or a fear of um, the kind of honest conversations you need to have about right. what went wrong yeah. to learn from. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you don't know, if you can't honestly acknowledge what went wrong, you're never going to improve in hospitals when there's a mistake. They do a root cause analysis. What led to this so we can prevent it from happening again? And and share this be- best practice. I think that maybe isn't as robust in government. You got to be willing to probe and ask questions. And I, I again, I'll take this back. I'll, I'll you know with a humorous story. I was the youngest of four. My mother was from Arkansas. My father was from Maine. Every summer we had to drive in an unair conditioned car uh, from Maine to Arkansas. I'm not that old, but they weren't. <laughs> That's a haul. You know, wasn't complete interstate. Uh, it was a hall, and I was the youngest annoying uh, child. <laughs> Are and we there I <laughs> would, would, uh, yeah, Yes, and I was in charge of asking my father questions to keep him awake. And I would annoy my my siblings, but my father would always say, if she doesn't ask, how will she ever know? Right. So i got my start uh, with those kinds of questions, uh, with those long car rides from Maine to Arkansas. Well,
0: you know, and I... I love that. And, you know, I guess like even with our own organization, like I I do want people to to be in a safe enough space to say, oops, or me, you know, being the leader, like I don't walk on water. I want to be able to be in an environment where I can go, my bad. This is where I went wrong. And, 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 and to be able to do it in a safe enough space that it's not being concealed because then we won't learn and it usually will get worse. And, you know, and, and to me, that's its own level of accountability in some ways. But I do see that needle to thread of like, I don't want to, you know, get in trouble, trouble. Uh, but at the same time, I, I want to, you know, don't want to keep this a secret. So I imagine, especially like in hospital settings, like that's got to be a hard needle to thread.
1: It is because you don't want to undermine the confidence of your team or of the patients or the families. But, um, you know, back 20 something now years ago, when a report came out called To Air is Human uh, um, from the Institute of Medicine, it was all about preventing medical errors. And I remember over 20 years ago when it first came out, um there was real resistance to a lot of its observations um because it's i think it's easier to say well human beings are going to make mistakes it's a lot harder to say but yes but what was preventable about that what 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 systems could have been put in place what what triple checking could be implemented i see it all the time in my my smaller organization here yeah well we transposed that number well How do we not transpose, you know, what are the little things that, that we too easily accept as just, you know, it happens and rather take a step back and say, but how could we do it differently and not have that, that kind of mistake. But to your point, people have to feel safe. You know, I would say this all the time in child welfare. If I don't know about it, I can't fix it. Yeah. If people don't escalate, I oversaw the state, uh, psychiatric hospitals said the same thing. If people can't escalate up concerns and complaints, and we can't have the opportunity to openly evaluate, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, unfortunately keep repeating the right. same. Right.
0: Mistakes. Yeah. How do we ever get out of that loop? And I think like part of it might be, um, to, to, to zoom out to some of the, uh, the virtues that you you've mentioned a couple of times is uh, how do we um, balance pride and humility? So you talked about the importance <laughs> of pride, and we got to be pride, proudful, and confident, and those are very you know important things. And at the same time, have humility. For, for me, it's like oh my. The, there's tension there. But we need to thread that needle, I bet, right?
1: I bet some books have been written about that <laughs> that you and I maybe need to to, to yeah. find. It is such it is such a great question and i think for our i'll use this as an example i think for physicians it is a is it is a unique challenge um, you know when i go to see a physician i don't know that i want to see them looking up a question i just asked um on their computer let me google that
0: yeah right i mean <laughs>
1: but, but but at the same time don't just tell me what you think right i need right. here in order smarter. to instill yeah. confidence yeah um it is a it is an interesting dynamic that that our physicians which is why there's been such a um effort to promote multidisciplinary teams uh, in healthcare to and i and i felt the same way by the way in my organizations and, and and today still feel the same way about the importance of team and i think sometimes people misunderstand um the not misunderstand, but perhaps don't put as much emphasis on why multidisciplinary, why diversity, and and my point with that has always been: individuals hear things differently, they communicate things differently, they have different life experiences against which they're um, thinking about issues. We all benefit in decision making. From that diversity, from that that multidisciplinary approach, but it can be difficult in a room, right? You've got the dominant personality that shuts down the the individual who isn't as dominant in communicating. You've got the contrarian who uh, you know, sky's blue. no, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, those are all the different personalities that uh, you want to have in an organization. It's the skill set of how do you harness all of that and achieve harmony. Mm, and wow. I could write a, you know, if I could write a book, I think it might be a bestseller. Maybe somebody has, <laughs> uh, but I'm still a, a work in process on on how best to, to really manage that, to get that harmony.
0: I love that harmony. As you're saying that, I, I was thinking like of a multidisciplinary team, you know, say within a healthcare setting would be. You know, someone that does know kind of the medical background, whether they're respiration or you know cardiologist or whatever it may be. But then you probably would want somebody that you know is a behavioral you know kind of person that can help people out with lifestyles. And then you probably need some kind of statistician, you know, biostatistician type person, or you know, like having all these different perspectives. But it all comes back to this understanding of yes, diversity, but also part and parcel humility. Like we don't know everything. You're, you're, you sound like you're a big book uh, reader. Um, Adam Grant wrote a book called, you know, the power of knowing that we don't know. And like really just owning that, you know, kind of like, you know, the Socratic method, like always be asking questions, be in the seat of a learner. There's so much to know and learn within this world. We can't possibly do it with one brain, one life. You know, and, and so like, you know, just to be just fascinated with the wonder and awe of trying to absorb everything there is to know. And when we encounter people that have a different type of brain, even if it's a contrarian for contrarian sake, perhaps they still have something to teach us that, you know, we have a
1: blind spot towards. I completely, completely agree. And I think, you know, because of the different personalities, people can be intimidated by either asking the question or being asked the question, the, the human nature of, Um, getting defensive uh, when you're, and I would always lead with, I'm going to ask the questions because I need to know it is isn't accusatory. It's not to be putting anyone in a defensive posture, but it's to, can we get it all out on the table and understand it? And I will say to your point about saying, we don't know what we don't know. um, I'm a big believer in that. And of course, I served as secretary for the Agency for Healthcare Administration at the beginning of the pandemic.
0: And I would do statewide
1: calls. Um, multiple times a day, um, multiple days of the week. And I would start all of my commentary with this is a virus that we are learning something new about every single day. And I did that intentionally because the last thing that you can do, and this is of course the age-old discussion right now on, on in public health, is pour cement around your feet. When when the when the facts and the medicine and the science are evolving and changing. And uh, I think, you know, we're struggling right now with some um, erosion in public trust and confidence in public health. And a lot of it is what you and I just discussed, humility versus confidence. Right.
0: Right. And and I think like people are kind of looking like for the certainty. And, and, and when people talk with a certain level of certainty and authority, it's captivating. For people and and but again that can get us like into like trouble um, in terms of what I would consider like the bad kind of pride. Like I think the pride you mean means like honor and and, and self worth and those kind of things. Whereas like pride originally was a very bad ty- type of thing to have. It was hubris. It was this you know I'm better than other people. You know, uh, egoic in nature um, kind of thing. And I feel like in in some ways the the important thing is is to Ask the questions like you're asking, like for for me, I think there's a stoic philosopher that says you know if you want to improve, you know be okay with not looking so smart with other people, so you can keep asking the questions to learn more, to be okay with that. And and I and I heard you earlier on talking about being in the public eye, being a leader. You know, there's a there's like a tax that comes with that, and that's public scrutiny and people that are going to sling arrows at us. Um, and so I think some of this you know humility might be better accessed if we're okay being criticized. You know, I recognize that it's natural to, to fear rejection and to want to be accepted by people. But how have you done that? Because, like, you are a public servant. Like you said, you know, you've had to, you know, receive many arrows uh, from people. And still ask questions and do all these kind of things. For me, I feel like that confidence and humility and how we unlock the two, somehow, some way go back to like our fear of what other people think about us. And how do we overcome that as leaders so we can be like really good leaders?
1: You know, and well, I, I want to, I will address that, but I also wanted to, to just kind of um, amplify your point about. The difference between pride and confidence and and true leadership, right? I do think coming back to government and, you know, using the pandemic or other crises, emergencies like that, people do need and should expect to see leadership, strong leadership from their government. I think we have often confused strong leadership with um overprojecting confidence or or masking, uh, some of the, the vulnerabilities or the unknown. So I can still be a confident, uh, strong leader and acknowledge, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, right? That can be done. I do think that is often difficult um, for leaders to acknowledge blind spots or, or vulnerabilities and that we've got to continually improve on. Um, in terms of um, the want, people wanting to be liked, um. At, you know, again, I really did believe that my job uh, was to advance the the goals and the priorities. In the in the case of either working at ACA um, or working um, in Maine, you know, I took very seriously those were um, civil servant or you know public servant roles, um, and then for the leaders that had been elected um, by the the voters um understanding what they were trying to accomplish and you have to always come back to that in order to in order to deal with the the criticism you know I, it was always interesting to me though my staff or my family you know they would send me hey did you see this comment that was posted about you in the newspaper I'm like no, no, I didn't, and I don't. You know, now I will say this: you have to be careful, right? There's a difference between shutting it all out and ignoring it versus being aware, right? I'm, I'm, I, I never ignored uh, the public dialogue. You've got to understand, because again, back to your point: did you go the wrong direction? Um, did you misread, misjudge? Uh, the, you know, the issue. Um, so, but you've, you can't let it control you and you can't become obsessed about it. And I, and I do think hopefully, you know, over my now 59 years, um, it's, it really, it, it's less of, it's not, it's not about me. And, and I, I really did embrace that. It, it's not about me. It, it's, are we making a difference, but, I, but, but it's hard to find individuals who can, I always said, I don't know how to interview uh, a, uh, someone for a job in that kind of a setting and understand how they'll respond in a pressure cooker that is on the public stage. Um, because it's normal human behavior to want to be liked. Sure. Um, and, and and you know, and obviously every day you're not making decisions where you're going to be immediately disliked, but in a political environment. There are generally multiple sides. Uh, and so you've just got to be careful that you're not oversteering with each and every right. uh, round of public debate. Uh, as you said, or the compass is the compass clear? In in guiding you, and I ho- and hopefully you know mine has been
0: right. Well, having a north star, right, that right. that can pull us out right. of those situations where the distractions and the outrage that's circulating and the negative comments. And sometimes I feel like people, some people need a villain, you know, to 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 motivate <laughs> themselves. It's like a yes. fuel. Granted, it's a combustible fuel that'll end up like exploding all over themselves someday eventually. But hopefully we steer clear of that combustion uh, when it, you know, and not get sucked into it. And like we were talking about earlier, we live in a time where we have these addictive screens, you know, that definitely seem to like amplify the outrage and circulate it in, in a way, you know, that like, uh, like I like what you're saying. is like, yes, be aware of it, but don't be necessarily in the weeds of it either.
1: Not easy to do. No, and and I would also say too, um, a good leader has individuals around them who are prepared to say, hey, "You need to rethink that. Right, right. Um, yeah. That might not be uh, the right next move. You might not have the ground as solid beneath you uh, as you want to believe." So that that's really important, and and you will see that in any organization. You've either got that diversity of opinion around you, or you've got such tight, small filters. Um, and and generally, we are all better off with more information to inform our decisions and actions.
0: You know, from afar, I would see that being very important. And and from what I understand, it's the. Um the people before they took those leadership positions or before they got quote unquote famous that have like a group of people, family, friends that knew them before they got real famous or popular and kind of know them a little bit that can help ground them sometimes versus being the people that have kind of gotten onto the coattails along the way that can help orient them. And I guess to that point, uh, I want to circle back to something that you said I thought was really interesting is that when you ran for governor of Maine, Um, and you you didn't win. I won't say that you lost because I think you probably learned a lot of things. And you said it was a moment that uh, you could, a good learning lesson for your your sons and in terms of resiliency. You know, how did you learn either from that specific experience or how do you look at situations where you, you didn't necessarily achieve the outcome you wanted you know, so, so, but maybe you learned, like, how do we, how do we encompass those kind of things? Cause as a public servant, as a mother, as a friend, as, as all these other kind of things, we're going to encounter those difficulties that we, you know, may have to, you know, kind of reconcile. They didn't go the way we wanted it to.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm not going to get the quote, uh, right, but there's, there's such value in failure. Right. And, um, uh, not that any of us go into anything uh going go oh, i hope i lose um i can still reflect back on all of it and as you said um and i love what you said it's not that i lost because i did gain so right. much yeah um, you know there is nothing like standing in someone's living room that you've just met and you're now talking to their friends and their family and their neighbors and for me in particular doing that it gave me such um I was so inspired by the level of commitment to town, commu- you know community, region, state, country, right? Just um we we can lose sight of that,, uh, given how polarizing all of our our politics um can be. so so i, wa- I won I so much uh, uh, from all of that that experience and the relationships there. Um, but I think the 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 failure and the recovery from failure is really important and and i you know i stumbled um because i was you know again it was easy to to those first few days feel humiliated um and and lost and i was uh you know my youngest had just gone to college um it, you know and uh, uh and i and, and as i said i loved love 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 the work that i had done uh, at the uh, Department of Health and Human Services in Maine, now I've just run this campaign. I've lost, and so re-establishing your compass and 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 you know resetting the dial. That's not easy to do, and I think and I, and I will say this as it relates to anyone at any time that experiences those lows. I'm not going to put a label on it right? Whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, you know, sadness, whatever it is, right? We all, every single one of us, you know, has had a moment of, of that or, or prolonged periods of that. And I think the important thing is, um, and this is true as well for people with serious and persistent mental illness that's, that we often overlook, there is recovery, there is recovery and um that is you know part of the equation that we've got to we've got to talk and teach our children about today is a point in time and it may feel like that dark cloud is forever over your head but tomorrow the sun is out and but you we we you know unfortunately for so many people they can't they and I understand this it's difficult to see beyond the black cloud the dark cloud over their head and You know, I've got, I'm sure, many, many experiences I could highlight, but that was certainly one where I'm like, now what? Now what do I do? Uh, And, you know, again, going back to my parents and how I was raised, one foot in front of the other, right? One foot in front of the other. And and you just got to keep going. And as you do, um, the pieces start to come back together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like that would have been a very disorienting time. And to try and get that equilibrium again, and, and not knowing where. And, and for me, I, I guess you know, one of the one of the quotes that jumps out to me as you're saying that was, um, I think it was Nelson Mandela that said something to the effect of like, don't you know measure me by on how many times I succeed, but rather how many times I, I, I fail, fall down, but get back up again. And, yeah. and it's that get back up again? Like, right? You're so you're in this you know period of you know you you, you didn't win the governorship, and you know you're disoriented, but you're getting back up again. And you, you, I, yeah. you,
1: you get back up again, and, the, and then for me, again, never having thought about uh, moving to Florida or a professional career in Florida, none of that was in the... Obviously, I was running for governor of Maine, right? I mean, that wasn't exactly what I was thinking about. And and the, the fact that I'm here and have been here, gosh, it'll be five years in January, and have been blessed, and I mean this, blessed uh, to be in this state. Uh, I have had... Um, the best experience uh, working in this state, building relationships with individuals in this state, you know, and some people will look at me and say, you, you still can say this after having been uh, at the forefront at the beginning of the pandemic. But, you know, I will highlight that period of time to say, I'm grateful that I was here um that I was able to serve in that capacity and I will also say this you know I can remember being really uh, concerned thinking my gosh you know a state of 21 million people and at the beginning of the pandemic you know we were handling some of these situations the the evacuation or the you know t- uh, transfer of individuals out of nursing homes on a case by case basis and I was thinking to myself how is this going to be um sustainable but what I saw and experienced that I would never have had the 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 honor of of having had I my path never changed. Massive state, Florida is a massive state, but responds as a community. And I mean that uh you know from the bottom of my heart. I saw a level of community engagement. And yes, everyone loves to say Miami is different from Tampa, different from Orlando. Jacksonville, Pensacola, and everywhere in between, that is true. That is certainly true. but the human beings that are here, the families, the the leaders, the the church leaders, there there's just a lot of common uh commitment to to community and to supporting one another. and and anyway, all that to say, uh, I not only recovered um I've, I've had the ability to 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 really benefit.
0: I think that's a great lesson in um, any difficulty we're passing through. Um, you know, in your case, it was not winning the governorship, but I'm sure there's other cases in your life or, or, or in any listener's lives where a breakup might have happened, lost a job, whatever it is. Um, if we could usually, in retrospect, with time, we'd be like like you're just saying, this is the a good thing that happened to me, because if it didn't happen to me, I wouldn't be here in Florida at a time when I could be of great service during a pandemic and you know, all these other kind of things. Um, you know, For me, I'm thinking, okay, I, I've had that experience. You're sharing that experience. I've heard this from other people. So when I am like currently in the present going through a difficult situation, can I have that comprehension while I'm going through it that this is going to lead me better? And if so, can I then kind of like close the gap? between that time and to the current present moment experiences going through the difficulties
1: and 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 that that is the secret uh, that I don't profess to have of being so aware i mean that's the that's the nature of a depression um or a sadness that is so um, profound you aren't able to necessarily see as clearly I, I, and again, I'm not, I, I don't want to trivialize the walk in the woods because you know, I'll never forget being at a conference. Uh, it was a, a national, uh, he was actually, he was with uh SAMHSA and this was a, a conference for mental health consumers. And, and he stood at the podium and he said, when will we start to prescribe a walk in the woods? And, and so, um, I think it's more, how do we, how do we remember the tools that help us find our way out? Um, and, and that's the one foot in front of the other. That's the, the breathing of fresh air. That's the being amazed at the beauty around us that, that slowly. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, people don't need other resources, medications, et cetera. Um, but how do we complement um, some of those uh, resources with the the human contact human interaction um the beauty of nature uh, those are healing
0: right now I, I 100% like agree like that to me is um yet yeah, you know the walk in the woods like so you're you're getting nature contact which again can bring that humility to our situation you know we're we are very small uh compared to nature um and and, and physical activity right you're moving which you know, as you probably well know, like is a very antidepressant type of uh, activity to do uh, that's been shown to be as you know efficacious, you know efficacious as medications in some situations while some people do need medications. Um, but then you' you got the social aspect. you know, so you're 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 walking with a Jane Johnson or you're walking with a you know other person that you can connect with. So it's like this like you're almost doing a holistic, you know, uh, self-care-ish, you know, kind of thing where you got nature, you got physical activity, you got a friend, um, and you're able to like really process some of the, the the challenges and difficulties that we may be going through. And you may be helping them, which then that could be a service. You know, so the, here we are now being altruistic because we're, we're with somebody else who we may be helping them
1: too. So then you throw service into it. It's so true. And we, we've we got a re mind how important all of that is. Uh, I think sometimes we can become desensitized by it. You know, those those morning conversations that, that individuals have with their friends, they're not just a morning conversation with the friend. Um, that is as valuable therapy human engagement and it changes your day right. it changes your outlook uh so um the, the the concern that we all have about the isolation and the the video gaming even though i know you can communicate with your friends through all that my boys used to try to tell me that all the time Blah blah, blah. <laughs> um, um it's not the same it's not, i was i was walking uh, with my youngest son not too long ago and we were in a neighborhood Oh my gosh. And there were kids out with with the with a parent, uh, like like neighborhood kids with a parent playing an outdoor game. And I made the two of us just stopped and and, and you know marveled at the, the beauty. <laughs> right, it's right. simple, you know, yeah of, of, of that of kids playing, the healthy interaction, running around the lawn, music was playing. Um it's just it's it's so important. Simplicity.
0: You know, I think there's some profoundness in the simplicity, you know, of these things. I'm starting around the corner with you, I promise. I know you're super busy. But one of the things that you hit on that, that I think would be good to, 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 to maybe summarize all this up is is um, when you come in here to Florida and seeing community. And, and And one of the things that you know we uh, have as one of the pillars here in the Independent Life Podcast is that um, unity through disability, like one in four adults have a disability. Most people, uh, if they don't have a disability, know someone that has a disability that they probably care and love for. And if we live the average lifespan, we probably will acquire disability. Like this all-inclusive group that, you know, is unifying. Like it doesn't matter your political affiliation, your birth order, um, age necessarily, uh, religious or non-religious affiliation, race, ethnicity, et cetera. Um, and, and it's this all-inclusive group and, and we try to seek unity through it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that that I found is like, you know, I'm not sure w- unity can be found in the arena of politics. Maybe it can, but it, I am struck by how some of our, so some of our services or some of these times of need where we all come together. Um, so we'll do wheelchair ramp builds for people in our community uh, that don't have a wheelchair ramp, don't have the funds for it, but you know, desperately need one and all the people that come out there and, you know, people will be Republican or Democrat, but they don't talk politics. They're there, they're they're having a good time. They're doing something of service. They're they're feeling good. There's camaraderie. We see this in disasters. People respond to a disaster. You know, they got their boats going through neighborhoods that are underwater. They're not saying, show me your, your political card. You know, you can come on the boat if you're, yours is red or blue or whatever it might be. You know, it's like, it seems like there's like places where we can still have unity. Um, And I don't know if it can happen in politics or not happen, but I feel like it's that human factor. Like maybe, you know, people that have political differences did do those walks together. Or if they do and they know each other, they probably, you know, even though they have differences, still love and and care for one another and don't see the other as evil or stupid and all this other kind of stuff. So I guess I'm saying a lot to ask you, like, how do we find more unity um, with within the, the the times and ages that we live in you know and that can be political or non-political you know in terms of uh, the context in which you, you you tackle that one.
1: Well, there's so many there's so many angles that I could approach but you know it, it does start foundationally and you said this um, and I've heard it as well um, talking about spouses talk to me like you love me. you might be upset with me, but still talk to me like you love me. Um, and so I think you know in the in the political arena, how have we too often lost the ability to communicate with respect and 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 when you stop being able to communicate respectfully it doesn't mean that you are not passionate doesn't mean that you don't see the differences in opinion between the policies you can have all of that and still be respectful you know i always you know i used to go back occasionally and watch some of the the british parliament and the way in which they would they would engage um, with the prime minister um you know and some of it not all the time but some of it you know with humor um uh and wit um one of the the ways that i try to approach uh, my advocacy uh around healthcare in our hospitals with with members on both sides of the aisle is to start with what is what do we all agree right that we want right and you know in, in in my case with a lot of the conversations that i'm having i do come back to we want human flourishing we want children to be successful in education and to become uh, independent adults we want thriving families now we're going to potentially disagree with how we get there Probably, right? I mean, that's the nature of strategies. Well, that'll work, that won't work. Okay, but can we all be united in agreeing that these are our goals? I find when you do that, it can maybe reduce some of the animosity and and, and try to get people to talk more respectfully about the goals and then dissect the, the differences It's like you know when 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 unfortunately I'm a little too easily Googled, and um, you know I'll talk to someone who I've never met before, and they might have Googled, and and they come in you know with this just really strong opinion that they've formed based upon what they've read, Uh, you know based upon some of the 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 policy positions and and, um, uh, advocacy that I did in in particularly in Maine, and then I'll have a conversation. I say, well, can I just explain the why and and you know and what we were trying to accomplish? And they'll say, oh, well, that's entirely different than than the context or or what was characterized. And so when we can just calm down, like the you know they used to talk about you know Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, right? Right. Out, have a beer. Right, disagree, disagree during the day. Such a different time. And you you yeah. said it as well. Develop the relationship first. All right, then go into the committee room, and and you know uh, there's nothing wrong with robust debate. Never, never, never. We've been doing that. You know, hundreds thousands of years. Right, there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a way to maintain the respect. You know, calling people names you know I, I, I raise my boys respect the human being respect the office that's that's lazy arguing right right it if is lazy yeah right come up with the substantive reason as to why um you disagree
0: yeah and and i think there is a difference between disagreement Slash like healthy, robust debate and like arguing, name calling, insulting. Right. There seems to be an important nuance there that often gets missed. Right. I'm so glad you brought up the Tip O'Neill Ronald Reagan comparison because uh, obviously we're we're of that age bracket where we lived during those times, and it just seemed different. Like compromise was. Yeah, you on you know during the day the business hours you did have that healthy debate, robust debate. But then yeah, you went and grabbed you know uh, an adult beverage and, and a meal and and hashed out and compromised and perhaps people lived in D.C. and their kids went to school together and they had play dates. I don't know. Like it just seemed different. That's right. You know. That's right. And, and you
1: said the word compromise. You know, I have increasingly seen you know the idea of a committee is to create compromise and if they can't reach compromise generally you don't then go forward right um that that process you know kind of bringing it back to to the to um the political arena the legislative arena and i'm i'm talking you know whether that's in congress uh or at the state level um coming back to what is the role in that legislative body of a committee process and um, what what is the role of of compromise in um, addressing those differences of opinion related to policy?
0: Yeah, no, I like that approach, and I, and I feel like sometimes it's the zero sum game mentality that really takes away from compromise. Like uh, you know, it's just like uh, you know, if they get a little bit of this, then we lose everything, or you know, it's kind of just like. Yeah, I don't know, the zero-sumness of, of uh, seeing reality in that way, you know.
1: It, it is, and I, the only thing I would say is you have to be careful, too, of how the table is set. Um, uh. There are some principles you don't want to sacrifice, and, and in the name of uh, compromise, you may be doing exactly that. So, right. you know, I think you have to be careful about um, the the context of, of the, you know, tables being set.
0: Right there. Yeah. There could be some non-starters and, and I guess that's the, where the North star and the why you know, kind of right. really kind of come right. in to help us, help us in those situations. Um, one of the things that we, we ask all our guests is a kind of a concluding question is um, what does the independent life living independently mean to you?
1: Boy, I could use one word, um, which is happiness. Um, I. I I have been so involved in trying to evaluate programs and I am saying it back from being a you know someone involved in government but I just I'm so passionate about seeing someone's potential and their talent and so when I when I think about the independent life it's making sure that people have that opportunity and ability to fulfill their potential, their talent, and to achieve their dreams, really their dreams. Um, And that, that just to me is that that's what makes for a vibrant society and, and leads to human flourishing.
0: Yeah. I I love that your, your, your point of human flourishing uh, you brought up a lot about the importance of knowing the why, you know, within ourselves or within a, you know, the mission of a program or a service. Um, I want to acknowledge and, and thank you for for your public service, your your dedication, you know, to to serving people and you know trying to really rethink systems and you know making sure that we're 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 serving you know the who, the how, and the where appropriately and effectively. Um, and thank you for sharing your 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 nuggets on leadership, um, on these virtues that are. Not easily actualized, but certainly in the, in the role that you uh, are filling, uh, get to put it into practice. And thank you for being open and, and vulnerable enough to share, you know, some of the difficulties that you faced and that you've overcome with some really good specificity on, you know, how how you do uh, overcome them and, and constantly seeking to to chase that North Star that you have there. So. You know, I just want to acknowledge you and, and, and thank you uh, for, for everything, you know, that, that, that you're doing and, and uh, wish you the best continuing to, to be a champion for, for a better day and human flourishing.
1: Well, thank you. I, I have been, um, this has been absolutely wonderful. I appreciate, you know, just the, the opportunity. I haven't had a conversation like this in a long time. So thank oh, really? you.
0: Yeah, all yeah. those talk <laughs> radios, interviews, don't go like not, this. Not not yeah. like this, right. not like
1: this. So this has been just as inspiring for me. So, so thanks for the opportunity. Well, thank
0: you, Mary. And uh, until the next time that we shall meet, we're gonna take this onward and upward.
1: Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352 378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.